0: Yeah. <laughs> my miners of intelligence and consciousness, I'm Rick Brooks, and this is Inquisitive Minds. Today with me I have a very special guest, uh, Ambassador Thomas Graham, who is w- the world's leading expert in nuclear nonproliferation and a se- senior U.S. diplomat and was, and was a part of every single negotiation in arms control and nonproliferation from 1970 to 1997. And if that isn't enough, he's worked with six U.S. presidents. So uh, I humbly welcome you to my show. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. Thank you, Rick. I'm happy to be here. This is great. So I just want to kind of start this off by asking you a question. And how in the world did you end up becoming, uh, getting into non-nuclear, non-proliferation?
1: Well, I was just a provincial boy from Kentucky. Okay. And I went to Princeton and was part of the Woodrow Wilson School there uh, and decided that I wanted some kind of career in international work. And I had different jobs over the years. I worked for an international law firm in New York. I I went to law school after uh, college. I studied in France for a year, but I never really found what I want wanted. And I was a democrat. Uh, I was became very disenchanted with the Vietnam War. I went to the 68 convention as a McCarthy supporter, and I was so horrified at the way the Democratic Party treated him that I afterwards wrote to my cousin, Melvin Laird, who was a uh, ranking a Republican on um, appropriations, the ranking Republican, who became Nixon's defense secretary. So after he, be- and I asked him if he would get me a job in the Nixon campaign, which he did. After that was over, I was offered a job in the Air Force General Counsel's Office, in the Defense Department, where I helped negotiate radar agreements with uh, early warning radar agreements with Canada. I was still looking, and while there in 1970, I heard about a uh, small agency associated with the State Department called the Arms Control and Disarmament Agency and their uh, principal function was to negotiate uh, international agreements on nuclear weapons, particularly with the Soviet Union. And that sounded interesting. Mm. And then I learned they were looking for a lawyer Uh, with Capitol Hill experience. Well, I was a lawyer and I had spent a year on Capitol Hill as the counsel to the House Banking Committee. So I went to see their general counsel. It was a small legal office and they did both the congressional and the legal work for the agency, since the whole agency was only 300 people, and um, uh, so he interviewed me and um, I uh, told him my background and so on, and and he said, well, you seem to uh, meet all our requirements, but you have to understand this is a very political agency and a very political administration. So you have to show, um, uh, you have to show political support. So it just happened, by chance, that two of my father's best friends no way. were the two Republican senators from Kentucky. <laughs> and one of them was Republican national chairman, and the other was the ranking Republican on Senate foreign relations. They both wrote letters for me, and I got the job. So when I arrived on my first day there, I said to myself, well, you've had six jobs in nine years. You probably ought to stay for a while here. And I stayed 27. Okay. That's how it happened.
0: <clears throat> wow. So from there, you you, you we, before the podcast we were talking about, you drafted a document, a treaty, right, that pretty much ended the Cold War.
1: Well, uh, yes. It, it's a little, slightly more com- complicated than that, but not much. Uh, the first step to end the Cold War was the uh was the relationship and the agreement uh, called the international uh, called the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Agreement negotiated between uh, President Reagan and President President Gorbachev? They became uh, very close, and at the uh, Reykjavik meeting two years before that, um, had a famous conversation about abolishing nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. So they kind of created, that kind of created the atmosphere, and then um, HW, uh, President H.W. Bush uh, was determined to follow up on that and, and see if the Cold War couldn't be brought to an end, although there was some skepticism as to whether it was possible, but he believed it was. And so one thing led to another, and uh, in 1989, uh, the U.S. and the Soviet Union agreed to participate in a negotiation which was set up to be a negotiation between NATO and the Warsaw Pact with the objective of ending the military confrontation in Central Europe, which was the centerpiece of the Cold War. Yeah. The... uh, Uh, million-man army on either side in the middle of Germany, East and West Germany, and everything that flowed from that. Uh, And so uh, that began in 89. No one thought it was possible, or few thought it was possible, but a year and a half later in November 1990, the treaty was completed. And it it began as a negotiation between NATO and the Warsaw Pact, but most of Eastern Europe began to slowly opt out of the Warsaw Pact. And uh, it ended up being a negotiation between uh, the West and the Soviet Union, uh, the Warsaw Pact crumbling in the middle of the negotiation, and Eastern European countries Uh, changing their names and no longer supporting the East. And then between signature and ratification of the treaty, the Soviet Union itself fell apart and we had to readjust all that. But it, it was that negotiation that actually did end the Cold War. That is amazing.
0: I, I, th- I think that's incredible that you were able to be a part of, of something so, so symbolic of, it, it, you know, in your lifetime. I, w- I hope, it is my hope that I am eventually a part of something that significant and amazing. I, that- I, I might just add, I I
1: was the one who drafted the treaty. I was the legal advisor to the delegation and also for a time the senior arms control person uh, on, the, um, on the U.S. delegation. Uh, and uh it was just i mean i could talk about it for all for all uh, the whole week uh, there were yeah. so many twists and turns and stories but it it was a, an amazing negotiation with five countries changed their names during the negotiation five countries, five countries. and countries. changed their names and and one country completely disappeared east germany uh, so uh it was a remarkable yeah. experience and uh afterwards uh, we had a different world
0: yep, I was reading uh, your book um and it was funny I, one, of the th- uh, the, one of the in one of the passages it was it was you were saying the East Germans and the West Germans were very content or they wanted to be the same country so they were kind of the middlemen between the two right. the two sides and they would pass along sensitive material to the other to the so you guys knew the Russians and the Americans knew what each other's uh negotiation points were before you even sat down f- across from the table. Well that
1: often was true uh, <clears throat> our texts before we put them on the table were classified secret but that didn't stop the Germans and and uh, on either side. Yeah. And <laughs> and uh, it was all to the good because uh, we we probably gave more to them than them to us just because they were faster than we were yeah. uh, uh, the Warsaw Pact it was not really an alliance No, it was a forced it was something agreement. run by the Soviet Union so they could act more quickly uh, on the other hand NATO ever, you had to negotiate everything through uh, Brussels before you could actually act upon it and that led to a lot of complications yeah. so uh, when we would get delayed, the, the Germans—they didn't ask our permission. They just did it. They just—they <laughs> gave our positions to the other side, so they knew what
0: to expect. And it actually worked out for the best for everyone. Yeah. So how, like, can you just sort of—I'm I'm fascinated by this. Could you sort of take us into how tense these negotiations was? There was there ever any yelling, with there outbursts of emotion, or were, were people just generally? cool calm and collected because i would have paid a lot of money just to about a fly on the wall just to sort of see the you know the expressions well, of uh, an emotion
1: well some incredibly amazing things happened uh in the negotiation between the two sides and within each side <clears throat> but it was always professional okay and uh always no one ever no one yelled at anyone uh uh and and um there was a lot of conflict, uh, yeah. of course, because of what was happening. But um, um, it, it, it uh, I'll just tell you a brief side story. I'll okay. make it very brief. Uh, my wife came over and uh, stayed with me for six months during the negotiation, took a leave of absence from her law firm, and we tried to go places on the weekends, and uh, to the extent that was possible, Saturday and Sunday. And one weekend in November, we went to Prague and uh, <clears throat> the inspectors were very suspicious uh, at the border of Saturday morning, inspected the car, inspected us. We went on to Prague and stayed at the Intercontinental Hotel, went out to dinner, and we're coming back to the hotel in the taxi and, uh, uh, the taxi driver said, the government is leaving. Do you want to go watch? Yeah, this is like 10 at night. So we drove over to the famous castle in in the middle of Prague where the government's high officials had their offices and we could see the communist officials uh, filing out. And the next day in Wenceslas Square, Havel announced the new government, uh, uh, the new non-communist government mm. 250,000 people were there uh and, and they were showing emotion okay and when we got back to the border instead of inspecting us the border guards uh, threw roses on our car and offered <laughs> us champagne so you might say what a difference a day makes yeah yeah what a difference a but day. there was a lot of that
0: so now that leads me to something that's – because uh, we spoke a little bit about this before. I have a theory on the, the quote-unquote new Cold War that's beginning. A lot of people with your, your knowledge and expertise that have dealt with the Russians, that you know, we're, we're – uh, members of the United States during the height of the Cold War are, are, are dying, and we're losing that human capital, that knowledge. Do you think that that is uh, significant, significantly contributing to the deteriorating relationships uh, well, with it Russia? Cer-
1: it certainly uh, rec- contributes on this side uh, and probably on the other side as well because uh, uh, Putin is not uh, in the classic mold of Soviet leaders, not that he's a Soviet, but in, in, of the last 70, 80 years, uh, in that he relies on ex- experienced people, he tends to rely more on his friends yeah. and his cronies, and, uh, and some of them, many of them, have had no experience of this type. But uh, we've we've gone through political ups and downs here, and a lot, a lot of our architecture <clears throat> uh, for dealing with these kinds of issues is, is no longer exists. Arms Control and mm-hmm. Disarmament Agency, for example, uh, was uh, abolished uh, uh, toward the end of the Clinton administration. <clears throat> Not at his instigation, but the <clears throat> Republican Senator Jesse Helms, primarily. <clears throat> um, and, uh, and then, of course, people retire and pass on. Yeah. So yes, I think that's an important part of it. Another important part of it is uh, the expansion of NATO, which we promised we wouldn't do uh, if they let East Germany merge into West Germany and be part of NATO. Uh, We sort of backed away from the promise, but Gorbachev and Shevardnadze were specifically told uh, by our Secretary of State that if they would allow that, uh, uh, NATO would not, quote, expand one inch to the east, close quote. And you can find that quote in a book by Condoleezza Rice. Uh, now, uh, uh, so that, that has ser- severely shaken uh, the uh, Russian um, leadership class. So that's an important reason. And then another reason uh, is that with the uh, disappearance of the expertise in disarmament and arms control, to some degree there's been a disappearance, uh, or, or or less of an emphasis on cultural understanding. I don't think we understand the Russians as well as we used to, uh, nor they us, and that is
0: another, another factor. I definitely think so. And I, I don't think that we—I think that we've almost forgotten how how important it is to get rid of of uh, nuclear weapons. Although, it is interesting because you know <clears throat> we did we dropped two bombs. We're the only country to ever do it, and it was terrible. and We don't want to do that again. But at the same time, deterrence—having uh, all these—the triads—the the defense system—you know—the right. having a nuclear bomb flying around the globe, missiles, the missiles. bombers, and
1: submarines. Yep,
0: yes. having all of that—the triad—like that, the triad, like that uh, deterrence does work. So. Uh, Coming at it from kind of playing devil's advocate, since since everyone everyone in the nuclear age, especially with, since Mervs and whatnot, n- no one's dropped a nuclear bomb. Should we all just get nukes? Oh, that's a It's another side of the question.
1: It might take a little bit longer answer, but I'll try to make it short. Uh, and let me add to my previous answer. Also, I, I don't think that uh, Putin's government has been good for Russia. It's It's a tragedy that that Russia, uh, partly induced by the other factors, didn't uh, become more democratic and and more associated with the West. Uh, It it might have happened that way. After World War II, we were very generous towards our former uh, adversaries, and we got two reliable, democratic allies japan and germany out of that after the first world war we did the opposite and we got hitler yeah well we behaved more like we did after the first world war and we have got putin so having said that on to your question um uh uh, uh, would you repeat the first part of it again The,
0: the first part of the question essentially is deterrence kind of it seems to work having everyone yes. having nukes and everyone being armed to teeth. no right. one's it's basically the theory is no one's crazy enough to 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 okay. nuke each other um, we just yeah
1: yes yes <clears throat> I didn't remember the the lead-in um, well uh, yes it worked uh, t- deterrence worked during the Cold War for 45 years but we came mighty close <laughs> to destroying ourselves yes. on at least six occasions. <laughs> we did uh, on both sides. Yeah, uh, and accidents too. It's in too 1979, uh, 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 the National Security Advisor was two minutes away from up from awakening President Carter to tell him that 2,000 Soviet missiles were on their way to strike the United States, and he had 10 minutes to decide whether to launch our missiles. Uh, and he, I've heard him say publicly, if he ever got a message like that, his response, would, in spite of his religious beliefs, would be to launch. And then fortunately, with two minutes to go, this was at three in the morning, and this conversation had begun 10 minutes before, the missiles, you, know, you only have 20 minutes to respond, um, with this announcement, and it turned out it was computer failure that caused that. <laughs> And so uh, that happened twice more during the Cold War on our side. And we had the Cuban Missile Crisis, which uh, just by luck, as the participants have always said, in addition to skill, uh, it didn't uh, uh, become an all-out nuclear war. And on their side, uh, they had a similar incident uh, to the computer uh, incident that we had on their side in 1982, nearly launched their entire force. And in 1986, uh, after the Cold War, uh, they mistook a test rocket launched from Norway as a, as a nuclear assault on Russia, and uh, gave the uh, launch order to four of uh, several of their submarines, told them in 10 minutes they'd get the, the confirmation of that, uh, the, the launch codes were brought to Yeltsin, he had them in his office, he activated the launch codes, only time that's ever happened, and uh, just at the very last minute, uh, before the time had run out, he said, no, he said, I know Bill Clinton, he wouldn't do this, uh, and so he d- elected not to give the launch order, and three or four minutes later, Russian radar picked up the test missile falling into the sea. So if that's working, yeah, uh, <laughs> yes, yes, it, yes it worked. Uh, uh, and we have a similar situation between India and Pakistan right now. And I don't think anybody's real happy about that. So, uh, I mean, they're right next to each other. Uh, somebody could make a mistake, computer mistake. All out war there would kill million a nuclear war would kill millions of people, plus it would create a cloud that covered the earth for a year or two of a, a dust cloud and probably most crops and most animals would die and we'd have widespread famine that's called nuclear winter oh, yeah uh, and uh, so uh, yeah, it worked, but
0: just barely but just barely now do you think do you think the future is is bright, or do you think it's glim? Well, I I don't think
1: I don't think that uh, the U.S. president, whoever he or she may be, uh, in the next eight year for the next eight years, uh, or President Putin would. Uh, would deliberately launch a nuclear war, but um, I don't think there, I don't think the same degree of caution exists as did exist during the Cold War so
0: I, I think the risks are somewhat higher I agree with you I mean we don't you get to th- we don't have the commercials that would you know the, with the little girl and the that's not we don't think about that uh, but the reality of the situation is that is a very big threat and and mm-hmm. having uh, deteriorating relationships between Russia and the United States is a very serious issue and that's something that I wanted to actually thank you for because uh, it's not something I was aware of or paid attention to was how important foreign policy is foreign policy is incredibly important, um, and the way we behave, the way that, that we as Americans are behaving right now, isn't really conducive to having a great foreign policy. No, it is not. It isn't. I mean, it's. I love. I love the fact that we are, you know, one of the most powerful nations in the world, and, and we're able to shape things. Because I would rather it be us than anyone else. But with with great power comes great responsibility, and we're not. I don't feel, and I know you don't, that we're being very responsible with the power that we have.
1: Well. Uh, uh, let me just say two things about that. First, uh, foreign policy, particularly national security policy, always was a bipartisan, uh, uh policy until about 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and it should be a, a nonpartisan uh, policy because the stakes are too high for our country. Um, and, uh, the second thing is, uh, Uh, we should not assume that the United States always will be the best. We are the strongest in the world now. We're the best country there ever has been, but um, you know, uh, as the Chinese would say, empires rise, empires prosper, and empires disappear. And there's no guarantee that this century, at the end of the century, will be Will be uh, one where the U.S. is dominant. We may be second, third, fifth, maybe or fourth. Tenth. Like, yeah, I mean, there's if a we lot don't of, behave properly,
0: if you don't behave properly, you also have to realize Ch- China was was a world power at one time. Yeah. Russia is about to add, I think, another billion people. Africa is about to add another four. And they can sustain that because of such a, because of their uh, their large land mass, which, I mean, if you haven't looked, Africa's massive. But uh, And another thing, Rick, uh,
1: climate change is
0: moving in on us. Yes.
1: And what that means is, among many other things, <clears throat> is that because of sea rise and even more because of desert expansion, uh, there's going to be uh, less arable land in the next 20, 30, 40 years. Yes. <clears throat> so what does a country do? say, I don't know, like Austria, or I'm just giving them as an example. Uh, Any, any country, any small country that doesn't have a big army, and uh, what do they do if uh, uh, arable land is shrinking all over the world and they have some of the best arable land? There's only one answer, nuclear weapons. So there's a, because that's the only way they can protect themselves against big armies. And so the risk of proliferation, of wide uh, nuclear weapon proliferation, I think, are becoming greater than they are now, or were, in the recent past. And I'm always struck by what President John F. Kennedy said in 1961, uh, in, a, in answer to a press question, in a press conference, and uh, he said that what kept him up at night was that, that He thought that uh, there was uh, a possibility that by 1970, this was in 1962, that by 1970 there would be ten nuclear weapon states instead of four, and that by 1975 there could be fifteen or twenty. And then he said, quote, I would regard that as the greatest possible danger and hazard. We should always remember that because it's, there's no guarantee that our nuclear nonproliferation treaty and the associated understandings will also always hold either.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. And and now really quickly, that's that's what you're doing now. You're 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 uh, you're, you're flying around the world, correct? Uh, promoting or talking about giving talks on climate change and the and the climate dangers.
1: change nuclear weapons nonproliferation treaty. And I teach this course. Yeah. And coming back to your earlier question about the lack of uh, people, personnel that understand these issues in the U.S. government, that that's that's why I'm here teaching. The yeah. Department of Energy uh, encourages me to come here and teach this course in the hopes of persuading some of you. Yeah. To to. Um, Uh, make your careers in government in this field because we need you and and we need if you know in my course you don't learn that much but at least you learn the beginnings yeah Uh, and so as you recall on the first day of the course I said you may think I'm a professor but I'm really a recruiter yeah and I am and I hope this broadcast uh, persuades bright young people to consider careers in the U.S. government, particularly in the national security foreign policy area.
0: Yes, Ed, that's great. I I would love to do that. I just, oh, man, the government and I, we don't get along so much. But this is a good part of the government. This is a, if, if you can say such a thing, this is a good part of the government where, you know, reducing the amount of nuclear weapons we have is probably the best thing that could ever happen.
1: It's a good part of the government, but it's also one where... <clears throat> emotions are high, and you shouldn't enter it unless you're prepared to, uh, from time to time, be rather vigorously attacked for your views. Yeah. It goes with the territory. Yes, I... I so yeah. you have to,
0: I mean, it's not all peaches and cream. So where where have you, I guess, I kind of want, because you're a very high-achieving person, so I sort of want to attempt to kind of deconstruct, uh, deconstruct how you got there real quick. So what do you have any morning like rituals, anything you do every day when you wake up? <laughs> yes, but it's not so much because of nuclear weapons, yeah, it's to keep
1: going. Yeah. I, I do about an hour and a half of stretches every morning. Okay. That's a ritual I try to always I, one reason I was late uh, that, <laughs> that's, that's what I was doing a bit earlier and had to put off some emails. But I try to do that every day. And the second thing I do uh, is I try to still engage in sports. Okay. Uh, if I'm in town, I play tennis three times a week. Pretty vigorous tennis. It's, it's now doubles, but it's no slow game. No, I, no. I play with really good players. Um, and, um, and then the third thing is uh, <clears throat> I try to use every free moment, I mean truly free moment, like when I'm sitting on an airplane, I never watch the movies. Never. I always read a book a- and so I try to read as much as possible. Yeah. And then also uh, the fourth thing, which is a derivative of that, is um, I've, I've written now, published uh, seven books, uh, two more this year and I'm gonna start another one next year. Uh, I, I try to do that and I, and I write articles and, and my speeches, I mostly write myself, okay. and I think about, you know, in advance, like I'm going to give a speech at Sandia National Laboratory, uh, in December, and, uh, on the future of deterrence in the 2030s. Okay, And, um, so I'm already thinking about what, what uh, I might say. So, if, if those rise to the level of rituals, those would, I like those that. would be, uh, my my rituals.
0: do you write things down a lot because I've noticed uh, I've had a lot of successful people tell me write things down and I try to and I've noticed that that's actually improved I wouldn't say my cognitive functioning but it's, it's I think it's pr- improved my productivity
1: Pass that book over Jimmy uh, this is a w- <laughs> really a good book I'm reading called a gentleman in Moscow okay it's a f- it's fiction uh, and it's about uh, a count from the old aristocracy who was given house arrest in in the Metropole Metropole Hotel okay. in w- Moscow, where he stayed for about sixty years. It's really a fun fun book to read. But here in the back, yep. Uh, here's the outline of my Sandia speech. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so, okay, you're always writing things <laughs> yeah. down too. Uh, some ideas came to me yeah. as I was reading this book, uh, and about, about what I could say in the speech, and so I wrote them down.
0: I like so that. There. There's proof. Yeah. All right, listeners, folks. This the ambassador is 83 years old, and I feel so. i have just so I, I'm so inspired right now. <laughs> so if this guy's playing tennis and stretching and writing things down and reading books, stop watching Netflix, people. Get active and do something. That's amazing. So do you have? Do you have any any of your books that you would want? Uh, what was what is the most important book you think that uh, the that s- twenty re- something I've written? Oh, yeah, that th- you've written th- and, a, and that a mid twenty something should read.
1: Uh,
0: well, I think uh, a book
1: uh, published in twenty twelve about the Middle East called "Unending Crisis" uh, is one. It's on your book list. Yeah, I'm reading it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that's one. Um, there's certain parts of my memoirs that, uh, if if you're interested in this field, are useful, like what I say about Salt and start and so forth. Uh, Richard Rhodes is a good friend of mine. He wrote The Making of the Atomic Bomb, which is the best book ever written about the uh, uh, do you know those? Bo- yes, it's uh, on the you, yeah, list. I've had the too, reading, right? yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's, uh, that's inc- an incredible. I started it. That's an incredibly important and powerful. But it's scary as well. It's scary. scary. Yeah. <laughs> I
1: mean, it, but it, it, it. He's written four books like that to bring things up to the present. Um, I would recommend them all. But the first one, the Making of the Atomic Bomb, is, is such a classic. Um, uh, um, I um, I was at a conference in New York many years ago. I don't even remember uh, what the subject was, but except that there were a lot of nuclear scientists there. And so it was um, um, a break in the action. I was talking to a very senior uh, scientist, and he said, and the talk turned to books, and he said, "Um, I can recommend to you two books that I promise you, if you read them, they'll change your life. And I said, all right, what what are they? And he said, one is the making of the atomic bomb. The other one is a brief history of time by um, uh, the very, very famous uh, British uh, Hawking, Stephen Hawking, okay. of uh, the, the astrophysicists. Yes, yes. And it, 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 it's written for the layman. Okay, and great. And it tells you all about black holes and the, how big the universe is <laughs> and how, s- how fast it expands. Expanded and is continuing to expand, it really changes your perspective yeah. on yourself and on this world. It makes you feel and so And it's in- written for the layman.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, it's about 180 pages long. Oh, man. I, I read it at about two pages an hour, and I, I read it twice, and I maybe began to understand <laughs> it. <laughs> I, yeah,
0: i I've in been, I've been on that one. I'm, I will purchase I'll put that on my Amazon Book, books list. you know all the doom and gloom it's i think it's important to say you know me being surrounded and having the opportunity to sit down with people like you it changes my perspective and broadens it and and i feel like it makes me smarter and it makes my listeners smarter and i i feel like as bad as the world can seem that we do live in the best time ever and and with our ability to be mobile social and communicate and then me communicating your ideas and the importance of them out to my audience well, there's a recent book uh, five years ago, The Better Angels of Our Nature.
1: Yeah. Uh, it's kind of along that line, except it's about violence. <laughs> and how much less, vi- no matter what yeah. we think, how much less violence there is now than oh, yeah. there was a thousand years ago. Oh, yeah. No, it's not comparable. And so we should think that way. And as bad as things seem,
0: um, you know all is not lost it's all is not lost and you know it's really it's just kind of figuring out which which where are you going to get your information are you going to get it from Fox News CNN or are you going to dig yourself and start talking to people i think talking and that's something we dialogue opening a dialogue with with anyone no another, another
1: thing if you just just want to focus on tv for a moment uh, what i try to do but not very successfully but yeah. intellectually i mm-hmm. try to do Uh, and I've done a little bit less of it lately because the election has just taken all the air out of everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, but what I used to try to do was to watch Fox, uh, CNN, BBC, and Al Jazeera. And mix them all up together, <laughs> and come soon. out about where I should be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah I, I don't watch any news. It's too depressing. I just I, I should. Yeah. I, I I get my most of my use from the from the internet. But I do have. I do want to be respectful of your time. So I do have one incredibly important question. Yeah, sure. I've got another you. ten minutes. It's it's goofy, but I ask every guest. Ambassador, do you believe in Bigfoot? Believe in what? Bigfoot. Bigfoot.
1: Uh, I don't believe in, uh, aliens. Nope, I gotcha. (laughs) I don't, but, I I mean, I think there could be some creature out there that makes these tracks, (laughs) and and, uh, frankly, uh, if, I hope I won't Offend? No, but, you won't. Uh, I, I don't really care. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, I I could see that that could be there. There there could be such a um, such an animal out there. It's similar question to is there a Loch Ness monster?
0: Yeah.
1: I've been to Loch Ness uh, twice, and I've looked at the waters, and you kind of you know, look. You think, what, what's that shadow? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, the, but Loch Ness is just about two miles from the sea. Yeah. And it's very easy to see how the water could have been a little bit higher yeah. in as one year, a bit millions of years ago or something, yeah. and the, a, a creature get washed over into this lake. But then how would he, he, the yeah, creature survive. have survived? Yeah, exactly. That That's what makes it.
0: So no aliens, though. No, why is that? I don't, why, why, I, why I don't, I don't that? believe
1: in that. Well... <clears throat> uh, this is not a direct answer to your question, but it's related. Um, Carl Sagan, the famous yeah. scientist, gotcha. is alleged to have said, "I'm not saying he did, but allegedly, some, uh, some people say that he did." And even if he didn't, it's a thought worth thinking about. Okay. <clears throat> Supposedly, as the story goes, he had given a presentation. And an older woman raises her hand, stands up and says, uh, Dr. Sagan, you've told us that that the universe is so vast that there's hundreds, thousands, maybe even millions of other planets just like this one. Mm -hmm. If that's true, uh, then why haven't we heard from any of them? And he said, well, he said, those that are too primitive Uh, don't have the means to contact us. And those that are more sophisticated than we are have probably all destroyed themselves. (laughs) <laughs> oh, that's so
0: dark. <laughs> <laughs> so dark. <coughs> so, that's why I don't
1: believe in aliens. Oh, man, I was not <laughs> expecting
0: that at all. Was <laughs> that was great. That was great. Yeah, do you have any... Go ahead, man. Bandit. Do you, if you, there's any type of information that you want to put out there, I'll put it in the show notes as well, um, uh, about your books, where people could buy oh, them. Or,
1: well, yeah. Um, I've recently published a, a novel, self-published it. Uh, it's called Sapphire, and it's about the Cold War. Okay. And um, everybody that's read it liked it, but it's self-publishing. You can get it on Amazon, but uh, it, it's easy to get the the Kindle version and it costs like four dollars, mm-hmm. but to get an actual book uh, you have to request it and they have to print it. So, um, and that's the problem with self-publishing. They, they, pu- they print on demand yeah. only. Uh, but I'm gonna write sequels to it and uh, uh, starting next year. Um, uh, I've, uh, I'm publishing a book uh, next year. It's finished, it's sitting over there okay. in, in, in line uh, here uh, at OSU Press the alternate route, and the thesis of the book is uh, disarmament as we know it is no longer possible because of the toxic relationship between the US and Russia. What about the nuclear weapon free zone movement? And uh, you know about nuclear weapon yeah. free zones. And, and uh, is that a possible alternative? Uh, and I've so well, those are some of my books, but they're, they're, I think they're all still on mm-hmm. Amazon. Uh, there's uh, four or five others. There's one called um, Spy Satellites, about yeah. how spy satellites changed the Cold War. Uh, well, really uh, saved, the, saved the world to some extent because it, it enabled the US, they enabled the US and the Soviet Union to back away from always worst casing yeah. each other they could actually see what the other, on. other one had, and that one uh, seems to be uh, popular in certain universities. Um, in terms of uh, other books, uh, just uh, off the top of my head, without having given a lot of thought to it, um, I like uh, Sleepwalkers a lot, that came out a few years ago about how uh, Europe stumbled into World War I, mm-hmm. and they, and they, they never, they never should have. Uh, I like the biography of um, Einstein um, uh, uh, by um, um, the um, the head of the Aspen Institute, um, a- and um, and then uh, let's see. Um, there's an excellent biography of Putin uh, by Stephen Myers, just published. Uh, uh, I just read it. Uh, I would a, like to read he's that. He's a senior reporter with the uh, New York Times. It's very good. Um, uh, there's no shortage of good books out there's
0: there. There's no shortage. And then also, if people want to find out more about what you do, the talks you give, is there a website? Yes, I have do? a
1: website. Uh, it's uh, real, not too tough to get to.
0: ThomasGraham.info. Thomas it's Okay, great. <laughs> I'll put that in the show notes as well.
1: Yeah, because that's got, that's got all, all my books, speeches. Re- interviews yeah everything
0: that, th- yeah I just want to again thank you so much My for pleasure. coming on the show uh, it's always a pleasure to sit down with a United States ambassador um, Walter Isaacson is the author of Einstein okay well, okay, there we yeah. go thank you yeah. um, so everyone here I hope you guys enjoyed this be sure to check uh, out the information I'm going to post in the show notes and, uh, and remember guys stay inquisitive there's always more that meets the eye and And don't be afraid to to open up a dialogue, sit down, look at people that are different or talk to people that are different than you guys. I love you guys all. Thank you guys so much for listening. Rick Brooks out. Hey, Infinity Break fans, do you want to show your support and devotion for an extremely obscure group of entertainers? Well, now you can. Just go to our website at infinitybreak.net and click on the shop tab to be whisked away to our Redbubble, where you can find all sorts of awesome shirts, stickers, notebooks, and other gadgets decked out with icons from all of our most popular shows. Act now, because that stuff will be there forever.